Welcome to Feel Better, Live More Bite Size, your weekly dose of positivity and optimism to get you ready for the weekend. Today's episode is brought to you by AG1 from Athletic Greens, one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across. It contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes, and so much more, and I myself take it regularly. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more to access a very special offer. They are giving my listeners five fantastic travel packs and one year supply of vitamin D free of charge with your first order. See your details at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Today's clip is from episode 292 of the podcast with Russell Foster, a professor of circadian neuroscience at Oxford University. In this clip, we discuss how a lack of sleep can affect our health, and Russell shares some of his top tips for better sleep. How sleep-deprived are we as a society? And then secondly, what are those consequences? Sleep deprivation varies a lot because, of course... Sleep need varies a lot. Um, But I think on average, people are saying that we're sleeping one, maybe two hours less than we were in the 1950s. And I I think those data are are pretty robust. And certainly that's the case in in adolescence, big time. Um, And so what are the consequences? Well, short-term sleep loss, we see changes in our emotions uh, and our cognitive performance. So uh, we increased levels of irritability, the failure to process information accurately. We do stupid and unreflective things. We are less empathetic. I mean, it's really fascinating. You, we, we fail to pick up the social signals uh, of friends and family. Um, we're less socially connected. We have uh, reduced capacity to remember things. We are less creative. Um, so all the things, reduced sense of humor. I mean, you know, all the yeah. things that make us this extraordinary creature, you know, this amazing humans, you know, all this creativity and wonderful and interconnectedness goes as a result of, of, of even short-term sleep loss. Longer term, we also see that there's changes in immune uh, responses. So it's likely because we're chronically tired, we're activating in a sustained way, the stress axis. And that's going to push up blood pressure. It's going to throw glucose into the circulation. So it pre then disposes to things like obesity, type 2 diabetes. And indeed, because of the suppression of the immune system, higher rates of infection and indeed um, cancer. Chronic sleep loss is so much more than feeling feeling tired at an inappropriate time. It's associated with an impact upon our health at every level. Yeah, I mean, what you just went through there, it, it, it impacts negatively our, our day-to-day lives. You mentioned empathy. I mean, what do we need for good quality relationships yeah. with partners, children, work colleagues, family? Mm. We need empathy. So much of the stuff going on within the brain and the body whilst we sleep defines our ability to function during the day. And, you know, it's, it's really, we've got to start embracing sleep. There's a lot in your book about our body clock, our body clocks, I should say, and what they all do, what influences them. One thing I've felt 
an experience when people, when my patients, when members of the public are thinking about sleep, they're often thinking about the evening. They're thinking about what do I do just before bed? And of course, that's important. We're definitely going to get to that. But I thought it would be useful, particularly through the lens of the clock, I guess, talk about the morning. Why is what we do first thing in the morning so important for our ability to sleep at night? Yeah. For our biology to work, you need the right stuff, the right concentration delivered to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And of course, our circadian and sleep-wake systems do that. So if you disrupt them, you have uh, a whole bunch of vulnerable points where things could fall apart. So we have this this circadian system, this sort of internal representation of a, a biological day. And what it does is anticipate the very demands of the rest activity, the sleep-wake cycle. Now, For it to be of any use, the internal day needs to be set to the real day, the astronomical day. And the classic mismatch between biological time and environmental time is jet lag. And we eventually get over jet lag as a result of exposure to the the light-dark cycle in the new time zone. But what we require in any time zone is daily exposure to the light-dark cycle, and particularly morning light for 90% of us. Most of us have either a long body clock or a body clock that's slightly longer. And so it will naturally drift a little bit later and later and later each day. And the effects of light are not the same. Morning light advances the clock, makes makes us get up earlier and go to bed earlier, whereas dusk light delays the clock. It makes us go to bed later and get up later. And so what morning light does to us is take this drifting clock and shoves it forward a bit in time so it's beautifully aligned. Now, of course, this is important at every level. I mean, we did a study a few years ago on on teenagers all over the world and found that the later the chronotype, the eveningness versus morningness, uh, the greater the evening light these young people got. So they were getting up after morning. Um, So not getting the morning light, which would advance the clock, but they were getting evening light, which would delay the clock. So part of their their going to bed late and getting up late is when they were actually seeing light. And so morning light for most of us is really important to set the biological clock, which then aligns all of our activity, including the sleep-wake cycle, to the appropriate time of day. And This light exposure, whereas in the morning it advances the clock and in the evening it delays the clock, so pushes it back. What light exposure are we talking about here? Because let's say in the evening or at dusk you saw natural lights, not artificial lights. Does that still do the same thing at pushing it back? Or does that have a different wavelength that doesn't affect us in the same way? Well, you're you're sort of impinging upon what I've I've sort of been working on for a long time, which is how does how does light interact with the body clock? And the first sort of extraordinary finding was that the visual cells within the eye, the rods and the cones, are not required to detect that dawn-dusk mm-hmm. cycle. There's a third photoreceptor within the eye. And, and, and those, and we've been working out most recently how those receptors interact with this sort of master clock within the brain. So that's one thing. The second thing is that these photoreceptors need quite a bit of light. So we don't really appreciate because our visual system is so good, but we live our lives in dim, dark caves. So uh, shortly after dawn, um, natural light is some 50 to 100 times brighter than average domestic light 
conditions. Um, and, and so really what the clock is looking for is a bright light signal. And so we're talking in the hundreds to thousands of lux range. So if you think of, of natural light, okay, moonlight would be 0.01 lux, um, and a bright sunny day, even in the UK, can just about get up to 100,000 lux. Mm. And those those weird, amazing photoreceptors need, as I say, this sort of 100 to 1,000 lux range. Now, it's complicated because it depends upon how long you're exposed to that light. So you can compensate to some extent for a lower light intensity by increasing the duration. And this is where we fall into some problems because there's a lot of stuff out there saying you shouldn't look at a, at a Kindle immediately before you go to bed because it'll shift the biological clock. So the most detailed study, which was from a group at Harvard, asked people to look at a, a Kindle on its brightest intensity four hours before bedtime. And they asked them to do this on five consecutive nights. And after that, on the, on the fifth day, uh, sleep was delayed by an average of 10 minutes. And it was just statistical. And as one of my colleagues said, um, well, it may be statistically significant, but it's biologically meaningless. Wow. And so... But we do know that light in the evening can delay the clock. But how much and what intensity and for how long is still being resolved? Clearly, the brighter the light and the longer you see it before bedtime could shift the clock. But what we do know that light is doing is increasing alertness and therefore delaying sleep onset. So it's probably not the light from the devices changing the clock, but it's the light from the devices changing alertness and therefore delaying sleep. Yeah, super, super interesting. So if we just stick to what that study showed, that was on a Kindle. I know when I've heard you speak before that you regard kindles as quite different from smartphones or looking at social media perhaps you could explain why that is well because a kindle is 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 fairly you know you're just reading it basically whereas a smartphone you're checking your emails you're looking at social media you're checking the news you might even be listening to music at the same time and so these are really interactive devices and they will be increasing alertness and therefore delaying sleep onset yeah so interesting. You know, Russell, one of the things that's helped my sleep a lot over the past years, quite a few things recently, one is to avoid any sort of emotional stimulation in the evening. Yeah. So I've, this has probably been going for six or seven years now, I've had to educate the people around me, particularly my family, yeah. that I, I, I go to bed early, I wake up early, I just, it suits me. I don't know if I am actually a morning type, I certainly live like a morning type, but then I set everything up around that because... Ever since my kids were born, they've always got up really early. And I know for me, I'm a much better human being when I've had time for myself in the morning before anyone else is there. So I would shift it back so that I could have an hour to myself before they wake up. So I'm I'm now in a position where I usually go to bed by nine o'clock at the latest and I'm up by 5 a.m. at the latest. When I can stick to that consistently... I feel fantastic. Yeah, and that's exactly what we should all be doing. We should be defining, you know, what, what our biological needs are and also, of course, what our s social needs are, our societal needs are, and particularly our work, and try and tune uh, ourselves accordingly. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's so important. Yeah, and so that, that process required me to help people around me understand that, look, after seven, half seven, I really do not want 
to be contacted with anything unless it's an emergency. <laughs> I know. And, and of course, it's very difficult because, of course, um, towards bedtime is the only time when many couples get chance to talk about stuff. Yeah. But of course, it can be charged. And so, so, for example, I have banned any discussion of family finances before we go to bed or anything like that. You have to carve out time at a, <laughs> at a yeah. different time. The other thing that's interesting about your earlier bedtimes, of course, is you'll be eating much earlier. Yeah. And that can be very important. I mean, the, the data now are very clear that trying to concentrate one's calorie intake during breakfast and lunchtime and a very light supper or an earlier supper that, that you can possibly manage um, is better for our metabolic health and reduces the chances of weight gain, uh, obesity and, and type 2 diabetes. So, so you, you have a, a double advantage there by going to bed earlier. One of the things that has really helped me over the last years is, you know, I, I try my best not to be on my screen before bed. Uh, usually I'm good with that, although I'm human and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I fall prey to the temptation like anyone else might do. I try and read before bed. Mm -hmm. And in my bedside lamp, I put these low lux bulbs in. So I've got yep. this like amber low lux bulb. Now, I really feel it's made a massive difference the way I feel. It just feels soft. And whenever, if I'm in another room or staying somewhere where they've got a usual bulb, and I think, wow, this is quite obnoxiously bright. So are these things helpful in your view? They are indeed. Um, it, it sort of maps on, again, to the to the biology. This is what you, you'd certainly recommend um, because the lower the light, uh, you'll reduce uh, alertness and it'll be easier to get to sleep. And of course, if it's bright light, then of, of course you, you will shift the clock. But, but um, you know, most, most artificial light is not going to have much of an effect. Uh, but the other thing, of course, is that what you're doing is defining the sleeping space. Um, and so, for example, we need to sort of reinforce the fact that the bedroom or the sleeping space is what you do when you want to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, have a, a lovely mattress, you have great pillows, you, you might even have a distinctive smell like lavender or something else mm -hmm. because you associate that distinctive smell with the sleep state. And I know people who, when they go and they, they travel and they're staying in a hotel room, they'll take a partner's perfume or aftershave mm -hmm. because that defines the sleeping space for them. So the extent to which those are almost placebo effects, it doesn't matter. If they work, then it, it, you should embrace them. You know, I mentioned that amber bulbs that I have in my bedside lamps. I think also, as well as the biological explanation, I think there's also, I guess, something behavioral about them for me in terms of its, its signals to me, oh, it's now evening time, it's yeah. rest time, it's not stimulation time. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I think sometimes... winding down. It's, we assume that we can go from a fully conscious state, yeah. you know, going, go, the gear analogy, you know, going from first gear to fifth gear. You can't yeah. do it. Um, you have to do it through stages. And again, winding down from the wake state to the sleep state requires an adjustment. Um, and whether that's, as, as you were saying, you, you enjoy reading um, some novel uh, under relatively dim light before going to bed. Some people listen to music or something else that they find relaxing. And it's and it's it's adopting those behaviours that make the transition easier. And again, it's 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 as you were saying, it's the brain knows what's coming next, and what's coming next is sleep. 
Hope you enjoyed that bite-sized clip. Do spread the love by sharing this episode with your friends and family. And if you want more, why not go back and listen to the original full conversation with my guest. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you will really enjoy my bite-sized Friday email. It's called the Friday Five. And each week I share things that I do not share on social media. It contains five short doses of positivity, articles or books that I'm reading, quotes that I'm thinking about, exciting research I've come across, and so much more. I really think you're going to love it. The goal is for it to be a small yet powerful dose of feel-good to get you ready for the weekend. You can sign up for it free of charge at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back next week with my long form conversation on Wednesday and the latest episode of Bite Science next Friday.